Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest, best-selling author Bruce Feiler, whose newest work is called The Search. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the Thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. A million Americans a week are quitting a job. This number is almost twice as high as it's ever been in history. Not laid off, not being fired, quitting volunt that's 50 million people a year that's a third of the workforce and another third of the workforce is saying mm, i don't want to come in five days a week okay like what if i give you tuesday and thursday or tuesday walk i'm i mean only 15 percent of americans in white collar office jobs are even showing up to work anymore on a friday okay so there is this big renegotiation can i do it remotely can i do it from anywhere like and not even be in the same town all of this is a rebalancing of the balance of power between workers and, and workforce and so i think that if you are in hr and you are particularly in the wellness and health and safety and you know mental health you were three years ago in a small basement office with no windows and no one ever talked to you. It turns out there's a lot of people outside your door now and we are beginning to realize if you want to re recruit and retain talent, you have to change the way that, that you talk to your workers. Bruce Feiler is an author and speaker known for his insight and perspective on how we can better show up in the world. With seven New York Times bestsellers like Life is in the Transitions and The Secrets of Happy Families, he blends wisdom and contemporary knowledge to inspire individuals to lead more intentional and joyful lives. He is also a writer and presenter of two primetime series on PBS, Walking the Bible and Sacred Journeys with Bruce Feiler. Additionally, he writes a newsletter called The Non-Linear Life. In today's conversation, we chat about his latest book, the Search, Discovering Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World, based on real-life narratives for finding fulfillment in and outside the workplace. He tells us that those who find the most meaning and success don't climb. They dig. They go looking inside of themselves. Bruce's firsthand approach to his work Living the experiences he writes about allows him to provide practical guidance on navigating life's transitions and finding reasons for why we're all here. Before we get to today's conversation, just a quick note that at the end of this episode, you can hear an excerpt from the audio version of On Our Best Behavior. So stick around if you're curious to hear what it's about. Okay, let's get to our conversation. Bruce, I love talking to you because I actually, hopefully you won't take offense at this, but I feel like we have similar minds and mm. 
I love surveying and synthesizing and thinking of all of us as sort of these communal threads that can be pulled Mm. together and how similar we are. And yet it can feel like we're all alone in our experiencing. And so, you know, you do such a beautiful job. Life is in the transitions. I love that book. I know that really hit, hit a chord for people, but like you, I like seeing what seems imperceptible and invisible and then tugging it out into the light so that we all see ourselves in each other's lives. Well, first of all, that was beautiful. And thank you. And I'm touched to be here. I remember that conversation that we had about life is in the transitions when we were all in the middle of a massive life transition. And But the thing I remember most was your empathy and your humanity and your desire to find, you know, connection and dare I say it, even beauty in that moment of upset that we were all in. And you're right that that book touched nerve. And what was interesting about that book was that I had felt that the idea at the heart of it, right, which is that we were all raised with linear expectations, but we had nonlinear lives. And that sort of chasm between the expectations that we had and the reality that we were living was the source of a lot of the disconnection and confusion and pain and just sort of the sense of like, I'm off schedule or off kilter, right? The life I'm living is not the life I expected. I had that sense for a really long time when I started collecting and analyzing these life stories, in that case, three years before the pandemic. And now it's been a full six years. And it was hard for me to persuade people that this is what was going on. But the pandemic, suddenly the entire planet was in a transition at the same time. And I I was sort of sitting here. And I think that that's, I was sitting there at the time with the idea, it turns out, that that, that, that people needed. And I think that a lot of what motivated me to keep going and to do this for another three years and another, you know, several hundred of these stories was the idea that this was incredibly labor intensive work dare I say, painstaking work, like find the people, do collect these life stories, and they're much more intense than regular interviews, and I've done a lot of regular interviews in my life, then hire a team and then code them and looking for patterns was that it turns out to be an incredibly, I don't know how to say it, effective way to surface ideas about what all of us as humans are going through. The, the, the sort of the simple act of Asking different people the same question, and then, I think this is, again, something else that we have in common, then listening incredibly closely turns out to be a way to discover things that we all have in common that isn't necessarily in the journalism, in the academic literature, just sort of in the ethos, because it takes so much time and so much, as I like to say, sort of sitting down and shutting up and doing the work rather than sort of being on output all the time, which is what our our culture seems to value. Yeah. Someone, and I loved this, someone once told me that I'm a a cultural psychic in terms Hmm. of like seeing what's coming. And I would argue, I love, I love that idea, but really it is about just paying attention and listening Mm -hmm. closely and all of the signals are there as you know, and they emerge in the search as well. When you start paying attention and looking beyond, you know, there's that page at the beginning of the book where you, and I love doing this, this is one of my favorite things, auditing sort of lists, books, guests on podcasts to understand who is influencing culture and who we're listening Mm. to. And it is unsurprisingly, predominantly male and white and straight. And when you took the five most influential success books of the 20th century and then went through them. I mean, we know this on some level, but the statistics are staggering. So I started, if I just take a half a step back, right? So going back, it was six years ago. You know, I had had a kind of traditional linear narrative of success in my life. Like I'd figured out in my 20s what I wanted to do. I did it for no money for a while. Then I had some success and I got married and I had children. And I had that line, (laughs) that straight upward line that we all fantasize about. And then, of course, as you know, in my 40s, my life was totally disrupted, (laughs) you know, completely discombobulated, right? First, I got cancer as an parent of three-year-old identical twins. Then, Then I had financial trouble. Then my father had Parkinson's tried to take his own life six times in 12 weeks. 
And for a long time, though, I'm a professional storyteller. I didn't know how to tell the story and I didn't want to. And when I did, it turned out that everybody else had these moments in their lives where their lives were upended in some way. And so I set out on this mission to start collecting life stories. And I didn't know what I was looking for, but I knew that that was the essence of it. How do we tell our stories when we don't know how to tell our stories anymore? That's what produced this idea that the linear life is dead and we all have nonlinear lives and they involve more transitions. And then I wrote this book. And as we discussed, Life is in the Transitions came out in the middle of the pandemic when the entire planet was on a life transition. And what I realized at that time and what I maybe intuited and maybe even, you know, psychicified or whatever the word would be, because I do think <laughs> that we have that in common. And I do think a lot of it has to do with just being willing to listen, actually, that work was going to be the next domino to fall, that this, that the combination of the political upheaval, the the social upheaval, you know, the you know, the the public health crisis that we were in, it was going to prompt people to reimagine what they were going to do with the work. And that's, again, all that I knew. And so then I went out and I collected several hundred stories. And I did make a specific emphasis to, to find people from underrepresented backgrounds, women who are now the majority of the workforce, more diverse workers, etc. And what became apparent was that in the process of each of us rewriting our individual story of work, that we were rewriting the collective story of work. And it was when I realized that, that I got curious as like, what were we pushing again? My wife and I have this sort of interesting kind of tension right now. My wife, Linda, works with entrepreneurs around the world, as you know, and we've been out and about recently. And when people talk to me, when people ask me what the search is about, I will say it's, you know, we the, the essence of it, right? Is that we don't, the fewer of us are searching merely for work, more of us are searching for work with meaning, right? That we're transitioning from what I call a means-based economy to a meaning-based economy. And a lot of it, then I say, is that we don't want to chase someone else's dream. We don't want to chase our parents' dream. We want to chase our own dream. And she keeps saying, you're overemphasizing that. Like you're, and I'm like, no, it turns out that <laughs> a lot of people do what their parents want them to do. And a disproportionate number of these people are women. And this keeps mm. coming up over and over again. Like this was the story I was expected to tell. This was the path I was expected to follow. So where did that come from? And that's what prompted what I did that you've asked about. So I picked the five most successful, defining success books of the 20th century, okay? That's How to Win Friends and Influence People from the 1930s. That's the original, the first career book from the 19-teens. That's The Power of Positive Thinking. That's What Color Is Your Parachute. That's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Every 20 years, one of these books became the book, selling millions of copies, et cetera. And I read them all, first of all, which I, of course, had never done. And that's when I realized, oh my gosh, they all have one thing in common. All of their authors are the same kind of person. And then I went one step further and I turned, I got first editions, I turned every page, I counted every name and you have the numbers there in front of you. It is 689 stories, 631 are white men, 51 white women, five black people and two other minorities. And the black people are like a jazz singer and a colored cook. And I think that this is the baseline. If we do not realize how limiting, I would even say cruel, you know, and anachronistic the story of success that we've been selling, then we don't realize how hard it is that people, how hard a time people have trying to write their own story. Because the narrative that we have, rags to riches, up by your bootstraps, and on and on. I mean, Horatio, Al the idea of a Horatio Alger story why did Horatio Alger become a novelist? As you know, I tell this story in the book, because he was a pedophile before that. And he was at a church and he got run out of town and he fled to New York and befriended a bunch of young kids and started writing about them. Like, this is how limiting that story is only the story of one type of hero <laughs> chasing only one type of dream. And it turns out now that the workplace today is majority female, okay, majority minority, okay, and lots of things that when you and I were growing up were not possible, like 
taking time off to raise a child, okay, or care for an aging relative. The, the idea was once you got off the ladder, you could never get, get back on the ladder. Well, when there's no ladder and there's no path, you can get off and on whenever you want. You can make changes whenever you want. You can say, I'm going to do this for five years. Like, okay, now I need to make a lot of money because my spouse has to go get a second degree or because I got two kids, for example, as I do, getting ready to go to college, right? And now I could do something for myself or now I can prioritize my family or now I can, I can give back. So it turns out that when you find out that the story we've all been sold is a limiting story, there are many more stories. The challenge then is how do you identify what's your story? <laughs> what is it that brings you meaning? And that's, of course, what the second half of my book tries to tackle head on. I think that everything we bring into our houses has a certain amount of energy. I mean, I think we all know that feeling of having a cluttered home. And to that end, I'm really careful not only about where I spend my money, but what I bring into my house. And thanks to almost a decade in the wellness industry, I'm very conscious about product claims and product contents. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with the high quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. They really make the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beadlet and oil is so slick, it's actually patented. And most importantly, their capsule has a delayed release design to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And they study their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results? It increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are still getting a lot less sun than we would in the middle of summer, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Meanwhile, did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at Ritual dot com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. I want to put this idea of ascension and dissension in a parking lot so we can come back to it because I think it's spiritually essential and core both to life and to so much of your work. So I'm just, I'm flagging that for us to come back to. Awesome. But one of the revelations in the book, which absolutely is how I've lived my life, is that the average person, as you say, has five jobs. There's main mm -hmm. jobs, side jobs, care jobs, hope jobs, and ghost jobs. So can we orient people in that? I think everyone who's listening, will pro their ears might, perk at this because so many of us are doing more than one thing. So the core, so what do I do? I go collect these stories. I then analyze them. What are the themes that emerge? Okay. The first is we are sold three lies about work. Okay. Lie number one, you have a career. Okay. The idea that you are going to follow your passion, right. And lock into something that you want to do early. And then you're going to do that from 21 to 72 that's dead and deader than it's ever been. And what's more, that turns out to be a historical aberration. There's only the idea of a career was never even used 100 years ago. It was invented 100 years ago when people fled farms and came from overseas and moved into cities and didn't have anything to do. So they invented this idea of the career, but only for only for boys and only and only once. Okay, so line number one, there is a career. Line number two, there is a path. There is no path. Okay, the average person goes through what I call 
a work quake, right? So a work quake is a moment of infection or change or reconsideration or reevaluation. We go through 20 of these in the course of our lives, okay? That's every 2.85 years. That's two years and 10 months. And that number is higher for women. And Xers go, th them, go through them more frequently than boomers, millennials more than Xers, and Zers are doing them more than millennials, okay? So the, the, you're going to have all of these changes, and they could be small, they could be large. And here's what I think actually is the signature piece of data in the entire project, at least, and that is that more than half of these workquakes begin outside of the workplace, Okay, so it's not that something is wrong with the job or the boss or the hours or the benefits or whatever it might be. It's, a, it's that something happens outside. Okay, you have a relationship change. Okay, you have a child. Okay, you get sick. You just change your mind. I don't want to be a corporate lawyer anymore. I want to go off and be a fitness guru, as Robin Arzon from Palatine did a story that I tell. So that in and of itself is a weakness in how we think about work is that we only are talking about the workplace when most of the changes happen outside the work the workplace. And that I think is essential because it particularly relates to younger workers, female workers, more diverse workers, et cetera, where these other considerations begin to weigh. And then, so what is the third lie? It's the one that seems most preposterous, yet it's true. It's that you have a job. Like, of course I have a job. Like, you know, how do I pay the bills? Like, you know, how do I, how do I have health insurance and car insurance and things like that? But it's not true. Part of the problem that we have, the, the, the kind of the frame I think that's that's helpful here is, you know, what is work? Work, you know, as I keep beating to death in, in the search, is work is numbers plus words. Two-thirds of the conversations that we have about work are about numbers. Salary, benefit, hours, efficiency, you know, profits, loss, that kind of thing. And those are important. I'm not saying that they're not. But two-thirds of the meaning we take are from the words, Right happiness, purpose, service, success, these kinds of things, okay? And when you ask people, like the first question I asked in every interview was like, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Let me ask you, Elise, what's the first word that comes to your mind when I say work? Addiction. Kidding. Meaning for me, I think. I'll take either one of those because either one of those <laughs> are not what you do, right? It's not right, right think, podcast, you know, be a public figure or, you know, or, or, or edit or all the kinds of curate, the kinds of things that you've done. Two thirds of only one third of the people mention what they do. Union, manager, yeah. right? Carpenter, you know, beautician. Two thirds of people mention how they feel about what they do. That's when you get to the meaning. Okay. So let's go back to this question. So it turns out that we don't have one job because a job as defined by an economist is like work you do for money. But that's not how we use it in the culture these days. We have up to five jobs. Okay, first is a main job. And by every measure, only half of us even have a main job anymore. In my study, it was 39%. Okay. Wow. Then we have two thirds of us have a care job that's caring for children or aging relatives or other things like that. For some people, it's a pet or multiple pets. Then or volunteering, you have, right? Like in the community. Yeah. Well, then that's a that, that's a side job, right? So a side job is oh, something you do. Job. Okay. Right. So side job is something you do for love or money. And it could be volunteering. It could be serving on your co-op board, right? It could be being the mom for travel soccer, which you talk to any mom of the travel soccer team, that is a job. <laughs> Full stop. Yes. Economists may not call it a job, but that's a job because every week you're getting the mandarins and the little bottles of the water and you're sending a, that's a job. It takes whatever it is, eight hours a week to be that and as you're beginning to allot it. And by the way, in every dictionary, that's the second definition of a job is a task. Okay, so there's a side job. We talk about that a lot, that's three quarters of people, but there's two other categories that we never talk about that take a huge amount of time. The first, as you say, is what I call a hope job. Again, this term doesn't exist in the literature, but 80 plus percent of us have one of these. A hope job is something that you do that you hope becomes something else like writing a screenplay, right? Or selling blueberry muffins at the farmer's market, right? Something that you do that you hope becomes something else that, you, that, that you're pouring time in, that there is no money. By, for, by the way, for a lot of people, their hope job is managing their social media. Maybe they'll become an influencer, right? And get free products or, or whatever. Podcasting for many people is a hope job because they're trying to build their brand and find an audience and communicate with people. 86% of it. But even that's not the biggest one. The biggest one 
again, I didn't go looking for this, is that we have this invisible time suck that takes a huge amount of time, which doesn't give us meaning, but subtracts meaning from our lives, okay? Battling discrimination, staying sober, struggling with your mental health, worrying about financial wellness. Like I now I have money, but I didn't grow up in a family where I was taught what is debt, what is savings, you know, what's a bond, what's a stock. Like I have to do a lot of research to manage these things because I'm going to have my father is an alcoholic and I'm going to have to take care of my father, as a woman at Vox said to me. And so therefore I'm I'm having to worry about money because I'm going to have to take care of people that should be taking care of me. And so I decided to name this. It was really hard. And finally, I realized that what it, what it felt like to me was a ghost job, something that was invisible, that haunted us. And when I asked you, do you have a ghost job? It's a great question. I don't know that I feel like I have. I mean, sure. I, I mean, I'm in, I work on myself, but I don't feel like I have it to the same extent that you describe in the book. People who are dealing I don't have a workplace where I'm dealing with microaggressions, et cetera. Yeah, like that. I mean, I'm talking to a senior black executive at GE, and every time she walks into a plant that that makes that makes airplane engines, everyone looks at her like you're not supposed to be here, right? And that's just right. a, something that she constantly is struggling with. And when I ask, so I try to quantify it. Most people said it was all the time <laughs> that they were constantly. Right. But when I ask people to put a number, it turns out it was 12 hours a week. That's a quarter of the typical work week. So so we have this mix of jobs, okay? And I think that we, our impulse is to decry. We all are working too hard and we understand that. But I think we're missing something, which is that one of the reasons that we have these multiple jobs is that they are a way for us to cobble together meaning. The one thing that's non-negotiable is that people want meaning in their work. Th that, that is not changing and that's what's non-negotiable. For some people, that's money and hallelujah right? Because money might be freedom, right? Or providing for your family, right? Or not living in the circumstances that you lived in growing up or replacing that car or going on vacation or whatever it might be. But even for those people, it's rarely the entire span of their work life. Maybe when they're younger, mm. they're not so focused on that. Maybe after a time, you know, we know a lot of people in their 50s are kind of reimagining themselves looking for the second mountain or whatever it might be. So it comes and goes. But there are 4 million school teachers. There are 6 million people who work in nonprofits. There's a lot of people in public service. There are a lot of people for whom money is not the, the highest ingredient. And so, so what happens is the money is, the meaning is non-negotiable and we can take it from different things. So maybe I'm doing this job because it's the salary, it's the benefits, it's the health insurance. So maybe that's not bringing me the meaning. So then my side job or my hope job is what I do for meaning, right? Or maybe my main job now is starting a new thing and that's not fully there yet. So I've got to take a side job to make some money to pay the bills while I get this other thing going. So these multiple jobs are ways to make sure that we get the meaning that we want, no matter how we do it. You know, I, I don't, I'm looking right now for the stat about how, I can't remember exactly what you said, but this idea too that these side jobs, hope jobs, et cetera, only augment the way that we feel or perform about our main jobs. And it's interesting to think about this as an eventual double click yeah. for anyone who works in HR who's listening, because I think often there's this idea that these things are threatening, that if you have a main job, you are owned Holy, yes. you're a wholly owned subsidiary of the company who is paying your salary, which is a terrible feeling, right? Like that's a sense of enslavement that I think naturally we want to buck up against. But then the research that you cite that suggests when we can find meaning in other parts of our lives, it only augments and makes us more valuable employees. So you think about it almost as like, what would it look like in a world an HR world where there was help, that there was meaningful support in helping people's hope jobs take flight or dealing with ghost jobs and that people could sort of choose. You know, I hear a lot, my brother's, my brother's gay. He wasn't talking about this, but one of his friends who's also gay and childless was talking to me about this where he was like, you know, I understand how awful it is for women and no paid family leave and all of this. And yet at the same time, like the idea of taking 
working at a he's a corporate lawyer who has great benefits but this idea that pe- that parents get a little sabbatical he was like you know i would love that i would love to like travel or i don't know work on his own hope job i'm not sure what that would be but you think about it as like if employees insist on being main jobs and they need we we hear this all over the place nobody really wants to do that anymore how can you make a compelling work environment? Well, you can make it compelling by acknowledging and supporting that people are finding meaning outside of your four walls. I love this question for seven different reasons. But to go back into some of the, kind of the themes that we've been talking about in this conversation, one of them is the unexpected thing that happens when you start asking people, tell me about your life. I'm interested in you. Tell me your story. And one of the things that, that has happened in the course of this project while working on what I call the work story project of collecting and analyzing these stories and then writing the search is that I was focused primarily on helping people write and rewrite and revise and get the story of work that they want. Okay? We know there's been a lot about storytelling in the larger culture you know, in the last, say, decade, but for whatever reason, we haven't really carried that into the idea of work. The idea of a work story is not a phrase and if there's like one thing that comes out of this, mm-hmm. I hope the idea that we have a work story and that that story we have been telling our entire lives, and in order to tell it most effectively, you've got to go back to your childhood, which I'm sure we'll get to in a second. But the other thing that I didn't expect is that it turns out that a lot of people are responding to this book by saying, oh, I'm in the workplace and this is teaching me what's going on in the minds of my workers because a lot of what is happening now is that there is a tug of war and you just alluded to it. Like for most of the history of kind of, you know, industrial capitalism, most of the power has been with the employer. And the, 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 a lot of the tension, you know, six days a week, right? Seven days, you know, then it became six days a week and then five days a week. And now we're looking at alternatives even beyond that as the four day work week begins to be embraced. But increasingly a lot of this is is workers taking power back from employers and i think that what the pandemic is really what turbocharged this right so the old days where you could say okay oh well, at least i'm very sympathetic to the, the you have a, a child with an anxiety disorder, right? Or you're going through a, a personal health problem, or you have a partner who might be having a challenge. It was whatever it was that was in your personal life. It was, here's a fruit basket, you know, come back to work in four days. And that's basically what it was. And we know that when workers are changing work every 2.85 years, and when still a million people are weak, let's just remind, let's just pause and say this again. A million Americans a week are quitting a job. This number is almost twice as high as it's ever been in history. Not laid off, not being fired, quitting. That's 50 million people a year. That's a third of the workforce. And another third of the workforce is saying, mm, I don't want to come in five days a week, okay? Like, what if I give you Tuesday and Thursday or Tuesday walk? I'm, I mean, only 15% of Americans in white collar office jobs are even showing up to work anymore on a Friday, okay? So there is this big renegotiation. Can I do it remotely? Can I do it from anywhere? Like, and not even be in the same town. All of this is a rebalancing of the balance of power between workers and, and workforce. And so I think that if you are in HR and you are particularly in the wellness and health and safety and you know mental health, you were three years ago in a small basement office with no windows and no one ever talked to you. It turns out there's a lot of people outside your door now, and we are beginning to realize if you want to re- recruit and retain talent, you have to change the way that, that you talk to your workers. And I think the pandemic has a lot to do with this. The fact that the workforce is now majority female has even more to do with it. And the fact that younger workers are just not prepared to sell their soul to 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 companies anymore and to you want me there and mm-hmm. I'm going to uproot my spouse and my children it's just not going to happen so that brings me to the question that you asked and there was a study about side jobs and what the study about mm-hmm. side jobs showed was if your side job is the same as your main job it might zap your you know, interest or enthusiasm. If you work at a printing company, or right, or if you are a graphic designer at a magazine, back when they made magazines, but if you're a graphic designer and your side job is to calligraph wedding invitations, 
that may in fact reduce your enthusiasm or productivity or willingness to do your main job. But if it's totally different, it will actually reinvigorate you. So if you're a graphic designer and your side job is, as we discussed, you know, selling pickles, right? Or being a notary public, okay? Or, you know, being, nothing is, nothing is coming to mind. So if your side job is something that's totally different, because it will give you meaning and give you more energy, you'll do your main job better. So again, HR has to readjust. Some side jobs are threatening, but most side jobs are not. Yeah. No, it's super interesting. I love hosting this podcast, and I'm so grateful to all of you for supporting me and doing it. It's a great privilege to speak to amazing teachers and thinkers every week and following my curiosity with the hopes that it resonates with your own. Ultimately, all I really want to do is go back to school so I can go deep with an instructor. So where's one place to learn from some of the most remarkable experts alive today? Masterclass. There are over 180 masterclass instructors, including experts in leadership, negotiation, writing, and cooking. You can learn from former FBI agent Chris Voss, who teaches negotiation, Carla Welch, who teaches personal style, Bobby Brown, who teaches how to put on makeup, or Esther Perel, who teaches relational intelligence. Don't miss Esther's recent episode on Pulling the Thread. These instructors become your own personal mentors, helping you gain real-life skills. I use Masterclass, and you should too. There are more than 200 classes to pick from, with new ones added every month. For example, Dominique Ansel taught me how to bake over the holiday break, something I thought I'd never actually learn how to do. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash thread. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash thread. Masterclass.com slash thread. This was near the front of the book. It was someone who worked at GE and his one of his sort of supervisors said to him, Dispel the notion that if you do a good job, the company is going to take care of you. Only you can take care of yourself. And I feel like that's been another seismic shift. And you saw a lot of this at the beginning of COVID, people pushing back against this idea that your work is your family and mm -hmm. that there's somehow this these deeper ties that bind us. And yes, like I think you can make friends who feel like family, but at the end of the day... Most families can't reduce your benefits or let you go or, you know, change the scope of the agreement, right? And I think that, as you said, as you were saying, sort of the has, as the balance of power has shifted and people within this wider movement, which is what makes it quite miraculous that everyone together is pushing and redefining how much they're willing to give of themselves at work. This feels like the opportunity to 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 recenter our own stories in a, a greater narrative. I think that's exactly the point. I think it is a, a two-edged sword, right? So the good news is there is no career, there is no path, you know, there is no job. You can write your story. The one truth is only you can tell that story. The answer is inside of you. You already know it. You just have to identify it. The reason that's a two-sided sword or a, you know, a two-edged sword is that it's hard. It's difficult, okay, that we get paralyzed by choice, okay? We get writer's block trying to write the story of our own life, okay? And we get entirely frozen thinking, I can do anything. How do I do that? Like, I feel yeah. like this idea has been building for a while that we want meaning, but okay, I don't know anything about meaning. How do I find the meaning that I'm looking for, considering I've been sold all of these lies? And I think that the essence of that is where I think we make a mistake. Because, okay, you know, as you know, the second half of this book is built around what I call a meaning audit, like trying to figure out who you are and what is the story that you want to tell? What's the basic building block? By the way, first of all, what's the difference between meaning and happiness? Happiness is a fleeting feeling. It's, it's only present oriented. And meaning is something that binds past, present, and future. And the only thing that binds that is a story. So you have to tell 
your own story. Okay. So if you walked into a writing class, a journalism one-on-one class, they would say, you're going to ask what, you know, what, what I call the six Kipling questions, because Rudyard Kipling put them in the Just So stories. It's who, what, when, where, how, why, and how. Okay. And the mistake that most people make in work is they start with how. Okay. How do I get a job? Okay. I'm not happy. I want to do something else. I've just graduated from college. Okay. I'm an empty nester. I realized I spent 15 years doing this and I want to do something. How? And they go right to calling their friends and making a resume. And the problem is they succeed. <laughs> they get a job. They do what they think they want to do, but they're not happy and don't find meaning in this new job because you put how to early. How is the last question to ask? You've got to start with the other questions. And actually, to me, the thing that was most surprising and I would have to say most meaningful because it's kind of speaks to me as a person that came through is that the people who are happiest in what they do, the people who find the most meaning and therefore are the most successful on their own terms, they don't climb, they dig, right? They go looking inside of themselves. So let's just start with a very simple question. Let me ask you, what were the upsides and downsides you learned about work, at least from your parents? Well, I learned that my mother wanted to work. She was officially was at home with us, though she was always finding ways to sort of do unpaid labor in the community and that she would much rather work than take care of children, although she did a great job. And I Is that an upside or downside? That's an upside? Sounds like it was a double-edged sword for you. (laughs) A double-edged sword. Yeah, lots of double-edged swords. And my dad, who's a doctor, found a lot of meaning in his work and also a lot of exhaustion, you know, being on call at night, like disrupted sleep. He, He was an intensivist, so he was often at the hospital in the ICU in the middle of the night. And so to me, it felt like my dad did a good job because of all the supports in his life, primarily my mother, of having everything that he wanted but for me, my mom, sort of her life ricochets the most of mine. And it's, no, it's not a coincidence that my mom, who is incredibly intelligent, didn't have a great education, but educated herself and loved to read and is incredibly curious about people. And so it's not a surprise that my brother's a book editor and I work with words because... I think that here, that was here we go. Okay. Very pronounced. And why I start yeah. with this question is, is that this is the backstory, the backstage, the the lighting and the atmosphere behind every decision that you make about work. And if it's off stage to you, then you're not getting close to it. Like we have to go back. So what have we learned about you? Okay. That you know that you're wary of working too hard. We know it's important to you to balance work and family, but it's also important to you, and you use the word unpaid work, okay, so you already know that there's a tension between paid and unpaid, and you know that meaning is central. You said even your father worked too hard. So now we know that. So now, so everybody ask yourself this question, what were the upsides and downsides? This, just to put this in context, is part of what I call 21 questions to find work you love, which is the second half of the search. Now, one more question about your childhood. Other than parents or family, Who were your role models as a child? Susan Stamberg, Nina Totenberg, Terry Tempest Williams, who's a writer in Utah, Gloria Steinem, the founder of my school, strong women, ultimately, who had big intellectual lives. So these are the six questions, (laughs) right? Who is your who? What is your what? When is your when? Where is your where? Why is your why? And how is your how? These are the questions that you want to ask. The question about your parents is a who question, right? Because it's like, who are the, you can't pick your parents, right? You, you, you know, you're given your parents and it's what you learn from them. Who are your role models as a child? And what did you admire about them is a what question, because in effect, this is the first decision that you make about work. It's the first time that you're choosing something. And what is it you're choosing? You're choosing women. You're choosing strong women. Might I also add of... Susan Stanberg, by the way, whom I know and reminds me a lot of you, Nina Totenberg, Gloria Steinem, they're all incredibly good communicators, okay? Mm -hmm. So they're strong, 
they're they're actually empathic in, in many cases. They're seeing the invisible in things, okay? Because Nina Totenberg and Susan Sandberg are in invisible. They're radio people. So, you know, Gloria Steinem sees invisible invisible forces, okay? And they are able to communicate what they see, okay? So now we're beginning to see if we're trying to find out what is Elise want to, you know, if you're basically all this is an attempt to answer this question, like I want to do work that, right? <laughs> it's your what question, what do you, so the way to think about this is first of all, we got to go back to our childhood and understand where this story begins. Then we want to turn to the present, right? So you answer this question, I, I'm in a moment in my life when, okay? So if you answer that question, like I'll ask you, fill in the blank. I, Elise, I'm in a moment in my life when? I'm in a moment in my life when I am ultimately going to be tested because we are book twins, more or less, on the validity of the dream that I have for myself. And it's a turning point for me, probably more psychologically than and then practically about whether I can really do this or whether I need to go and get a main job again. Awesome. Okay. So what, what do I hear in there? I'm in a moment when I actually unapologetically want to focus on myself. Like I'm really important. I, maybe I don't have young children or maybe I don't have a dying parent or maybe my spouse is not the one who takes priority right now. Like I'm in a moment in my life where I want to try for my dream. Okay, I'm, I'm aware that it might not work, or it might work in a different way than perhaps I fantasize. But I know that there's no, there, the, you know, there's no getting a dream without a certain amount of risk. And I'm in a moment where I'm prepared to take some risk. Okay, and I'm going to and I know I'm going to learn about about myself. And different people answer that it could be different. I'm in a moment when I need to make money, because I want to buy a new house or because I need a new car or because I'm about to send two kids to college, or I'm in a moment when I want to prioritize my family, or I'm a moment when I want to serve my country, because there's great turmoil right now. And I want to go out and march in the streets. So this is a question that you get to <laughs> ask over and over again. Okay, what's the old myth, you ask it only once. When you're 21 yeah. and you lock into a field and then you do it for 40 years. This is the benefit of the nonlinear life is that we can make changes and it changes over time, which is why you have to keep re revisiting these questions. Okay. And we can go right down through all of these questions. But what I'm, my sort of larger purpose in this book is first of all, sort of explain how it is that we got here to this moment yeah. of great opportunity. And then also how do we take advantage of it to make sure we're writing the story that we want to tell. Okay, not that our parents or our culture or our religion or our neighbors or our you know people around us want or our company might want us to do how to tell your own story, and it begins through this process of, you know, what are the ideas about work that have been inside of me for a very long time? How is it that I'm feeling right now, and how do I take the lessons I learned from the past and the present to begin to write the story that I want to pursue in the future? That's the essence yeah. of writing your own work story and the S's of finding the meaning you crave, the happiness you deserve, and the success that you want. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. And I would offer, too, that sort of arriving, I probably could have arrived where I am much sooner. And But as you say, these are often sort of torturous, nonlinear experiences. And I've learned so much, even in some of my jobs that seem really far afield. And, you know, we're meaning making, right? So we're always going to look back and pull the things forward. But in every job I've had, even the ones where I worked and was sort of the only creative amongst a sea of engineers or whatever it may be, have been fascinating and, and helpful, even if on paper, you know, you talk a lot about sort of how the resume went mainstream and how strange it really is to summarize our lives in that way. And there's certainly things on my resume that you would be like, that's odd. But in retrospect, as I pull these threads forward, there's nothing I would do differently. 
mean, the resume is a really interesting thing because the resume kind of fetishizes, I think, the idea of a linear thing and that each thing has to lead to the other. And I think what you're expressing is what many people feel. I mean, the only thing that that sort of, I, I would say, twinges my heart a little bit just listening to you is <laughs> the slight sense of either regret or a, a, a poly, you know, an apologetic tone or a regretful tone that I should have been here earlier. That's mm. to me the ghost of the linear life that's still haunting you. Because yeah. I asked everybody in my conversations, right? The, the building block of this is the work quake. Well, let's just so let's just say you're in a work quake now. It's a positive. I mean, it 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 is a positive work quake, right? You've you've said this is important to me. I want to try this really hard thing. And if it works, you're gonna look back at this work quake as a defining moment in your life because it got you closer to being who who you could be. And in that regard, as you know, as we just heard in that viral video about success from from Giannis, the uh, basketball player from, from the Milwaukee Bucks, that there is no failure, right? Because what you're saying is there is never a failure in, in trying for the dream and trying for the fantasy and, and coming up a little short because it's always going to be not exactly what you what you thought it was going to be. But I asked, so you're in a work quake. I asked everybody, how many work quakes did you have? And then we would sit there painstakingly and count them. Okay, so if I ask you your first work quake, you know, Elise, I'm almost prepared to guarantee it was probably because the average age was 16.2 is probably when you were in high school. Maybe there were one or two when you were young adult in college and you had summer jobs and you liked or you did. And then we would go through these various jobs. Some, you know, some had great, you know, great traditional metrics of success. Some might have had heartbreak attached to them. Some might have been nonsensical. And then when I would count these things and the number was always higher than people thought. Remember, the average answer is 20, 20 yeah. between 16 and 72, okay? And then everybody was, oh my God, that's so many, or I'm apologetic, or it really did take me a long time. And I was like, no, we have to get over this idea that because it didn't follow this track that we expected when we were a certain age, that it's wrong. It's not wrong. This is the gift of the nonlinear age, is that these turns can come whenever, the midlife crisis, the idea that happens between 39 and 44 and a half, is, it's, it's worse than a lie. It's harmful BS. Because it because if you think about the pandemic, if you were between 39 and 44 and a half, you were having a traditional midlife crisis in the 1970s. But if you were 52, you were in, you know, a, a, a life quake. If you were 32, if you were like my teenagers, 15 at the time, you were in a life quake. So the point is we have to, we have to stop fetishizing stability and stop mm -hmm. demonizing instability. So for whatever reason, it took you a long time to get the confidence, to have the skills, to be in the life position, to be in the personal position, to be able to chase this dream. That is where it is. There's no reason to be. And it's it's sad to me that that you and every and lots of other people say, you know, I wish it had happened to me earlier. If that's what comes out of the search, like it can happen to you whenever, that would be a blessing but it can happen to you whenever. I appreciate that. And I appreciate all of your work that pushes against both this idea of stability and also the ascension. And maybe we can mm. end on this because I think it's such an incredibly important lesson. And you were talking about the distinguished professor of English and Afro-American studies at Yale, Robert Steptoe, and his book from 1979, From Behind the Veil. And he's talking about those prototypes for, for Black literary narratives that you have the narrative of ascent, which is Frederick Douglass. And then you have sort of the narrative of immersion, which is W.E.B. Du Bois. And, and this is a bigger theme, this going up and down and culturally, right? And you've obviously done a lot of work in religion. We love this culture of ascension, this idea that the body is base and the world is base. And we're really just trying to get out of here, right? We're trying to get to heaven. We're trying to ascend. And really, then you have sort of the, the other, many other people who are like, no, this is it right here. And it's both. 
And that seems to be what you're suggesting. It is both of these things simultaneously, an ascension and a dissension. Like, yes, it's here. And yes, it's there. And in all ways, we're moving in both directions simultaneously. But you talk a little bit about that. First of all, I just love talking to you. And I love the way you bring in these things from all areas of your life. And of course, you do this in your podcast, you, you know, you're in your work. In some ways, the kind of signature intellectual moment in my life in the last 10, 10 years was meeting a man named Marshall Duke. Marshall Duke is a professor at Emory. He just stepped down after 50 years teaching psychology. And at the time I was writing about family dinner and I called Lori David actually. And said, I want to talk to you. She says, you don't want to talk to me. You want to talk to Marshall Duke. And I went and I invited myself to dinner at Marshall's house. And Marshall told me about this research that he and his colleague Robin Fivish did 22 years ago now, which I later popularized in the New York Times, about children and children who knew more about their family history were better able to navigate the ups and downs in their own lives. It, it was the number one predictor of a child's emotional well-being. And I wrote about this in the New York Times in a story called The Stories That Bind Us, and it kind of went crazy viral, and it shaped a lot of my thinking. And I asked Marshall why that was. And he said that families have one of three types of narratives. They either have an ascending narrative. We came from nothing, we worked hard, and we got a lot. Or there's a descending narrative that we have a lot, and there was a war, a recession, or a pandemic, and we lost it all. But in fact, the families who are healthiest and who raised the children who are most have the greatest self-confidence that they can navigate the world, understand that they have an oscillating family narrative, okay? That mm -hmm. maybe grandpa came from nothing and worked hard and became the vice president of a bank, but then his house burned down. Okay, maybe the daughter was the first to go to college and she became, you know, she became a principal of a high school, but then she had breast cancer that she had to overcome. And children who understand that life is oscillating are better able to navigate the world. And this is a very profound idea. And I think it absolutely goes back to religion. If you look at the greatest stories of all time, look at the biblical story. Again, the greatest moments of, of growth are when Abraham leaves the, the, the stable world and goes to the prom, you know, goes into the unknown, when the Israelites leave Egypt and then go into the wilderness. Okay. When when Jesus, you know, goes into the desert, when when the Buddha goes off, okay. And then every other great story with, you know, with Orpheus or Jason and the Argonauts or Samson, all of these stories have people leaving the civilized world going into the unknown, having a difficult experience, and then coming back. And the moments of growth are always in the instability. That's what I'm saying is that we've yes. over kind of rom romanticized the stable parts of our lives, and we fetishized the unstable parts, right? What do we, we have to grit and grind and resilience our way through. This is really unfortunate, okay? Because it's in those in unstable periods in the wilderness of our own lives, in the sense of doubt and confusion and, and uncertainty, that's where the growth comes, okay? And so what Stepto is talking about, and the reason it's the smartest thing I read on work, though it has nothing to do with work, is that there are these traditional ascending narratives and descending narratives, narratives of ascent and descent, but the greatest ones have both. And the story of work, this goes back to the very beginning, and you're right, is rags to riches, up by your bootstraps, higher floor, bigger salary, greater benefits, better view. That's the only story because that's the traditional white, straight white male story. And when you broaden the number of people who are telling work stories, it turns out they're telling different kinds of stories. And the people who are happiest mm -hmm. don't climb, dig. You have to go into yourself. You have to do who who is my who and what is my what and where is my where and when is my when before you do how is your how. If there's one thing you take away from this conversation or that you people get out of the idea of the search is you can tell your own story, but you have to do the work to figure out what is the story you want to tell. If not, you're chasing someone else's dream and you're going to be happy. You don't have to chase anyone else's dream. You can change you don't have to chase someone else's dream. You can chase your own dream. And in the process, you can write the most important story you're ever gonna write, which is what is the story of success that you want to tell? Who do you want to be? And how can you go forward and write that story beginning today? For anyone 
listening who is struggling to understand their work story, Bruce's book is a great place to start. It's called The Search. And we also talked a bit about Life is in the Transitions, another book of his that I loved that put context around the fact that for all of us, this idea of one or two disruptive events shaking us is a lie and that we will, he calls them life quakes, we will experience life quakes all the time, whether it's loss of health, loss of job, loss of a loved one, loss of a relationship, and so on and so forth. And that that's life. Those are the opportunities. He was intimating this. Those are the opportunities when we get bigger, as scary and as unwanted as they may seem. The end, he talks a bit about the definition of the American dream, and he describes it in this way. Today, it contains four primary ingredients up. America is the land of aspiration, ascension, ambition. Me. America is the land of freedom, opportunity, individualism. Mine. America is the land of prosperity, affluence, abundance. Win. America is the land of achievement, victory, success. Per his research, 60% said we should update the American dream. The idea needs to be revised for the 21st century to be more inclusive, more communal, less acquisitive, and less careerist. And then he offers these four key themes. One, success is not climbing, success is digging. Two, success is not individual, success is collective. Three, success is not means, success is meaning. And four, success is not status, success is story. And now, here's a little preview of the audio of On Our Best Behavior, available wherever you get your audiobooks. The whole thing is read by me. In our culture, we conflate jealousy and envy, even though there's a critical difference between the two words. Jealousy is not between two people. It requires a third. This might show up as someone in pursuit of the same date to the prom, or a sibling who gets more time and attention from a parent, or a coworker who has a better relationship with the boss. Jealousy is about fear and threat of loss, and there's typically a reasonable target. It's a word that gets a lot of use. Jealousy feels natural and understandable, even respectable. Sometimes we throw it at each other as a loose, passive-aggressive compliment to disguise our own dismay. Your husband bought you earrings for your birthday instead of a coffee maker? I'm so jealous. You went to Hawaii? I'm so jealous. Your kids happily read books without being coerced? I'm so jealous. These are actually examples of being envious, but jealous just sounds better. Some couples even like the frisson jealousy creates to be reminded that their partner is objectively attractive and could be swept away by someone else. Envy, on the other hand, is unsavory. We think of it as malicious and largely unconscious. The etymology of each word gives us clues, too. Envy, from Latin's invidiere, comes from regard maliciously, grudge, whereas the root of jealousy comes from zeal. Envy is also intimate and one-to-one. Someone has something or is doing something that you would like for yourself. Maybe a friend announces her engagement while you've struck out on yet another blind date or is having a baby after you've experienced a series of miscarriages. Maybe someone else got the job you thought was yours or is succeeding in a way that minimizes your own accomplishments. Your envy in those situations is painful. And, as we learn from fairy tales like Snow White, the ultimate insidious tale of intergenerational envy, envy is so powerful and bad, it might motivate someone to have you killed so they can eat your heart. While we're generally accepting of jealousy in relationships, love will make you do crazy things, we can barely tolerate the wash of shame that comes from envy. I'm so envious doesn't really roll off the tongue. It sounds malevolent. 
Brene Brown explains in her book, Atlas of the Heart, that envy is typically armed with hostility and deprecation. I want that and I don't want you to have it. I also want you to be pulled down and put down. This might sound extreme, but I believe it's accurate. The way we apprehend envy currently does not make it palatable or acceptable. As Brene contemplates, I wonder if unconsciously, we don't use the term because it's one of the seven deadly sins and two of the Ten Commandments are warnings against envy. Is it in our upbringing and our culture to feel shame about feeling envy? I think the answer to her question is yes. This shame shuts us down from exploring and even identifying envy when it rears its green little head. We ascribe our discomfort to something else, usually to the shortcomings of the person inspiring our irritation. But recognizing our envy can be an act of emancipation, and embracing it fully is one of the most important things we can do. Because it requires us to own our wanting, envy is the fulcrum, or hinge, for all the other deadly sins. To voice desire, to want something, is the first expression of agency. Want is an essential verb. This compulsion to get our needs met, to wish for opportunity and excitement, drives us forward. It's the initial step on the path to asserting yourself. While envy is a gateway for the other sins, it also has the honor of being the one that, unlike gluttony, greed, or lust, offers zero sustained pleasure. Envy tests our tolerance for watching other people get what they want and reminds us of what we've been too afraid to pursue. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack newsletter. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive on Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen. Meanwhile, if you haven't already, please pre-order my book coming May 23rd. It's called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, and it's an exploration of the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available for now, for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Doval for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.